You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Welcome to the culture war, everybody. Glad that you are here. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Titus. That's where we'll be. For those of you online, good morning to you as well. Hope to see you in person sometime soon. If you're out of state, it's fine. If you're, if you're local, let's talk, right? Come, come be a part of what we're doing on, on campus. We're beginning a brand new series this morning that I have been very excited about for several weeks now, a verse-by-verse study through the letter to Titus. And, and I want to tell you up front, that Titus holds a very special place in my heart uh, for a very personal reason. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I came to this church for the first time. It was Daylight Saving Sunday, 2007. I'd been to, uh, married to my wife for uh, not even two months, I don't think. And this was a part of our conditions for marriage. There was one condition that Jessica gave me that I had to go to church with her every Sunday. And uh, I reasoned with myself, I was not a Christian at the time, an hour a week seemed worth it to marry the girl of my dreams. So uh, we found this church because it offered something that no other church offered, at least to my knowledge at the time, which was a later service where I didn't have to tuck my shirt in. (laughs) Praise God. And so uh, God does work through the lazy. Amen. Um, I uh, did not received Christ that Sunday, but I did open my ears. There were some things that James said that were truly impactful in a way that I had never been impacted before. And I expressed to my wife, you know, I think I want to begin reading the Bible. I had a King James version of the Bible. Uh, you know, I've repented since then and, and, and updated thyself. Um, but, but I told my wife, you know, I wasn't even aware that there was a, a translation that was easier to read. And, and James made a, a joke at one point that, that got me asking questions. And so I asked him after service, what do you read? And he said, it's the New American Standard. And, and so I told Jessica, hey, I, I think I want to start reading the Bible. And so she called her mom that day. Her mom, Amy, who's in first service, uh, lived in North Carolina at the time. And uh, she got up and went and bought a New American Standard Bible, put my name on it, and overnighted it to Texas so that I would have it the next day. Yes, praise God. And uh, that is a good just lesson, parents. Um, and, and, and I began reading it. And it was probably two or three weeks in, coming to church, coming to Bible study, reading the Bible pretty regularly, that one night in my living room, it was as if the lights came on and God got a hold of my heart. I was born again. I believed the gospel. And it was Titus that I was reading when it happened. And so Titus has always been a place that's very special for me. And so when I began thinking about, you know, what book of the Bible do, do I want to begin with here? Titus seemed like a good place. Uh, truthfully, as special as it is to me, it is special for us now, given our context culturally as well. As relevant uh, as it was when it was written, it is relevant today. And so I've titled this series, The Culture War. Now, unless you've been living under a rock for the last several years, you've probably no doubt heard that term, culture war, such a daunting term, I might add. In the event that you have been living under a rock, and I wouldn't blame you if you have been, the last three years have been pretty horrible, uh, let me define what a culture war is so that we're all on the same page, so that we know what we're talking about here. A culture war 
is a cultural conflict between social groups and the struggle for dominance of their values, beliefs, and practices. Let me say that again. A culture war is a cultural conflict between social groups and the struggle for dominance of their values, beliefs, and practices. In other words, a culture war is a fight between two opposing groups. It is a conflict over what personal values, beliefs, and moral practices should become the social norm. Okay, so let me give you some examples of contemporary values, beliefs, and moral practices. Uh, Things like the moral and ethical problems with abortion. This is a big one right now, has been for some time. Uh, LGBTQ plus rights. This is a social issue with with some, at least some attachment of moral discussion to it. Gender identity. Can one's gender be separate from one's assigned sex? These are the questions. These are the, we would call these the modern battlegrounds of a culture war. To decide what should be normative in society. What should be classified as a normal practice. And so these topics, they create a lot of tension, don't they? At one time, abortion was not something that was seen as normal. It was seen as immoral. And there are now some who argue that, no, it is morally okay. And thus, a battleground has been created for a culture war to take place. So let's agree. Before we begin, we exist in a culture war. Amen? It's around us. It's happening around us. Whether you agree or whether you think you should have anything to say about it or whatever your position is, it's happening. But what I want to submit to you this morning is that it's actually always been happening. There's always been a culture war. This is nothing new. As much publicity as it gets now, nothing has really ever changed. Let me give you an example. There's a book written called The Culture War, addressing these issues. And this is on the leaflet. You open the book, the little inside pamphlet part. It says, abortion. Funding for the arts, women's rights, gay rights, court packing. The list of controversies that divide our nation runs long and each one cuts deep. Ooh, so dramatic. This book shows that these issues are not isolated from one another, but are in fact part of a fabric of conflict which constitutes nothing short of a struggle over the meaning of America. So this is a book that's giving commentary to these contemporary battlegrounds that we find ourselves in. Abortion, gay rights, women's rights. This is right where we're living, right? Except for this was written in 1991. 31 years ago, for those of you who don't love math. So for at least the last 31 years, these are issues that have not changed at all. They're still being argued over. So let me give you a reality, and this is a reality that we are going to build upon really probably throughout the whole sermon series. It says this, wherever there are people, there will be a culture war. Wherever there are people, there will be a culture war. Now, don't just take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. The Bible has a lot to say about this. Scripture over and over again presents this idea that the world is essentially divided into two groups with opposing personal values, beliefs, and moral practices. For example, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33, Jesus talks about when he comes again, the second coming. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Amen? Verse 32, before him will be gathered all of the nations. 
And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Two groups. There are sheep and there are goats. And the sheep are God's people, and the goats are those who deny Jesus, rebel against his commandments, and reject his authority. There is a separation. There is opposition in the way they view the world and the way they live their lives and what should be seen as normal. Jesus also talks about uh, the narrow way that few find and the broad way that leads to destruction that many go down. In the book of Revelation, John uh, essentially divides the world. He sees it as the kingdom of the beast and the kingdom of the lamb. And, and again, we see interaction between these two opposing groups where they are waging war against one another. Really, one is waging war against the other. The other is just sort of peacefully taking it. You get the sense that in the Scripture, this is a prevalent thought, that there is a, there's a prevalence of opposing ideas about beliefs and moral practices and personal values, and thus battleground issues arise. Hence, wherever there are people, there will be a culture war. This morning, we're going to embark on an eight-week journey through the book of Titus. Uh, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. I'll say more about that in a minute. But the goal of this letter was for Titus to bring order to the churches in a place called Crete, which is a large island off the coast of Greece. And when we read this letter, we figure out pretty quickly that Titus was sent into the midst of a culture war, that he was sent into a place with two groups who held opposing values, beliefs, and moral practices fighting over what should be seen as normative. And if we're being honest, the values and beliefs and moral practices that Titus is engaging with are not too different than the ones that happened in 1991 and the ones that we face today. In other words, we need this letter. This letter is valuable to us. We learn a great deal of things from Titus. We need to understand our role in all of this. How is the church supposed to operate? What are we supposed to be doing? How should we engage in the culture war? Should we engage at all? What hills are worth dying on? These are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves, and Titus answers them through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit written through Paul. Now, before we dive in, we need uh, the most important thing for any Bible study, which is context, right? What are the three rules of Bible study? Context, context, context. Yes, if we're going to walk through a letter verse by verse that was written 2,000 years ago, we need to know some things about it before we understand anything in it. We need to know who wrote it, who it was written to, what were the issues that were going around, what was the culture like. And so let's, let's start there. A lot of this is going to be a little introductory for the first part of this message, uh, but we, we got to know this stuff in, in order to rightly understand it. Who wrote the letter to Titus? As I mentioned, Paul. But, but how do I know that? Uh, because Paul tells us. Verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the letter tells us who wrote it. It was the Apostle Paul, and Paul describes himself in two really important ways. Number one, he calls himself a slave, a slave. This is a term in Greek, doulos. It's from the word from which we get the English word doula, a servant, someone who serves uh, in our context in birth. Uh, shout out Karen Nugent. Um, Usually, this is translated as a servant in your modern translations. And, and it doesn't really strike, I don't believe, at the heart of the word. The word is really better understood as a slave. 
Now, my suspicion is that translators of modern text avoid using that term because of how loaded it is in America today. When we think about slavery or a slave, your mind probably almost immediately moves to colonialism in America, and that was a very different brand of slavery than what we found in the Old and New Testaments. Now, to be clear, I'm not making a case for the goodness of the Old and New Testament slave. It's still very bad practice. It's not positive, which is why you see, like in Philemon, for example, Paul is sort of reversing this trend. He's, he's, he meets a guy named Onesimus that's a slave, and he sends him back now as a brother, not a slave. So uh, it seems like wherever Christianity uh, trends towards in history, these sort of social structures get knocked down. Uh, but, but here, understanding the slave role is very important for not only understanding who Paul is, but who we are, okay? Um, this term still, although different than colonialism, indicates something about subservience. A slave had no rights, no authority to make decisions for themselves. That authority belonged to their master. So for Paul, when he says, I'm a slave of God, he means it in every sense of the word. He's communicating something about the nature of his relationship with Jesus. In other words, he's not the captain of his own destiny. He's not calling his own shots. He has been subjected to the direction of God regardless of his opinion. He didn't get a say. He's a slave. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but, but this, this important identity uh, is, is valuable for us because it connects to our relationship with Jesus as well. It defines how we relate with Christ. You know, we love to say in the evangelical church, we even sing songs, right? I'm no longer a slave. Amen. Amen. No longer a slave. Or I am free. We've been saying that for 15 years. I am free, right? We love it. Praise God. And while it's true that as a Christian, I'm not a slave to sin, we forget that we are very much, in fact, slaves. That while we are free from sin, we are not free in total. These are misunderstandings of the biblical text. Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, Paul says, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, look at this, having been set free from sin, have become totally free. Have become slaves of righteousness. You just changed masters is all you did. He goes on in Romans 6, 22, But now that you've been set free from sin, and you have become what? Slaves of God, there it is, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. Now, can we be honest about this? This wages war against culture today. You try and tell somebody, hey, you're not in charge of your life. You don't get to decide what your purpose is. You don't get to decide what you do. Not your body, not your choice. This is the biblical understanding, and it is offensive to postmodern America. It is offensive to say you don't have rights. You are subject to God and his moral design. Your opinion doesn't matter. God doesn't care about your hot takes. And when you understand your role, all of that becomes very clear. But listen, this threatens people, and it is at the very core of our faith and our identity as Christians. Paul says, I'm a slave to God, and so are we. This is going to come up again. We'll revisit it. Notice what else what he says. He's an apostle. 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. So get the combination of ideas that Paul is, is combining here. This is really, I think this is amazing. He's a slave, so he's powerless, but he's also an apostle, so he has authority. In other words, he's subject to God, but he also speaks on God's behalf. He goes where God tells him to go. He doesn't get a say in that. He doesn't get to, there's not a bartering system. God says, go there. He goes. But what he's been uh, tasked to do, God has also equipped him for. This is who's writing this letter. Someone who has incredible authority to speak as the mouthpiece for God as an apostle. And oh, by the way, he's also a slave like us. Who is it written to? Look at verse 4. It says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. So we get the idea that, that perhaps Titus was led to the Lord by Paul. What do we know of, of Titus? We know, for one, that he was not a Jew. He was a Greek, which is great for us because we have that in common. We're Gentiles. So was Titus. Uh, Galatians 2.3 says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So he was a Greek Christian. Beyond that, he was seen as someone very valuable as a co-worker of the apostle himself. 2 Corinthians 8.23 says, As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because I think just as an aside, it's important for you to understand how the Bible interacts with itself. Right? Whenever you're reading the Bible, you're not reading just a book on its own in a vacuum. The things that are taking place in the letter to Titus have impact in other spots of the Bible. And so while this book is named Titus, after which it was to the person it was written, Titus was mentioned in other places in the New Testament. He was a real person. So it was written by Paul to Titus for the benefit of the churches in Crete. That's the context. Now for the remainder of our time, I want us to consider what makes us as Christians different in this culture war. We are different, amen? Or, I mean, at least we should be different. We're not always. We should be set apart as the church. And so I've titled this message this morning, What Makes Us Different? And there are two very big ideas in this passage that I believe answers that question very sufficiently, that really explain what makes us different in the modern world, that shapes our involvement and how we engage in these social issues. And so uh, we're going to jump in. I hope that you'll take notes. We're going to dive deep. This is not a devotional level study. This is verse by verse exposition of the living and active word of God. And my hope for you and my prayer for you is that you'll be challenged by this, the depth, the gravity of what God has said here, and it'll really impact your life, because that's the goal, right? Transformation, to be renewed in mind uh, towards Christ's image. Here's the first thing that makes us different, and this is a little, a little lengthy, but follow me and I'll explain. Our group identity defines our individual values. Let me say that again. Our group identity defines our individual values. Now, why would that make us different? Because what I will submit to you is that every other social group in the world works in the opposite direction. Usually, how this works is that you as an individual have individual values, convictions, and that you group up with other people who share those same values and you become a group of some kind. In other words, you figure out what matters in life. Uh, many of you young adults, and especially the 18 to like 22, this is the formative years, right? Cognitive theory, all that will tell you this is the time when you will begin to think and decide what matters the most to you. 
And so what's going to happen is you're going to derive those values and then you're going to naturally meet other people who you figure out share those values and you're going to connect with them and you're going to have some kind of social interaction in a group form. This is how groups form in the world. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Let me just say that. This is not a negative thing all the time. There have been some great groups formed out of shared individual value. Let me give you an example of one of them. May 3rd, 1980, a 13 year old girl named Carrie Leitner was killed in Fair Oaks, California, when she was struck by a drunk driver who then drove away. He was later found and convicted. But what was also found out was that not even a few weeks prior to that hit and run, which resulted in the death of this young girl, he had received already one DUI for the same problem. Not for hitting someone, but for driving under the influence. And so uh, Carrie's mother, Candy Leitner, organized a group. There were other mothers who shared her individual value that drunk driving should be punished more harshly. And they formed together a social group known as MAD. Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which, by the way, just like super extra bonus points for the, the play on words. I mean, that's just incredible. It's, it's good. It should make you mad. This is individual values that, when brought together, formed a group identity. This is how social groups work. This is how they're formed in the world today. For the church, the opposite is true. This is what makes us different. Our group identity forms our values and not the other way around. Notice our identity here in verse 2. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Why did Paul write this letter? He tells us, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, the big question on the table is, who are they? Who are God's elect? What does that even mean? Now, the simple answer and the less hostile answer that we can all agree on, hopefully, is that God's elect is anyone who comes to faith. Can we agree to that? Amen. Now, I'm going to submit to you that this word perhaps goes deeper than that. Uh, it's the Greek word eklektos. It's a word that literally means chosen out of or selected. It means that those who come to faith come to faith not only because they choose Jesus, but because primarily God chose them before the foundation of the world. So 1 Peter 2.9, uh, Peter says, You are a chosen nation, a people for, God, for what? For God's own possession. That is why this happens, because God determined to have a people for his own possession. He chose us. Now listen, I don't want to get caught up in this. Uh, we don't have time to really flesh this out, but I do want to submit to you that the role of election is important in how we operate in the world today because it defines our identity as a whole. And it thus defines our role in the culture war. Some people struggle with this doctrine, and I understand that. It's a hard doctrine to understand. Uh, but, but it's always been a little strange to me because the Bible is full, literally full of examples. So in the New Testament, you have Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. He says, even as he chose us in him before when? The foundation of the world. Before anything else existed, he chose us. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why did he predestine us? The purpose of his will, that's all it says. 
2 Timothy 1.9, it says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of anything that you're going to do or that you've already done, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. This is in the divine heart of God. Even Jesus himself says it, John 6, no one can come to me. No one can come to me. Understand that unless the Father who sent me draws him. The New Testament is full of this idea, but here's the thing. It's not even a unique doctrine in the New Testament. It's all throughout the Old Testament as well. When you consider the scope of redemptive history throughout the Bible, starting all the way back in Genesis, election is a common means by which God operates. God chose Noah to repopulate the earth, him and his three sons and their three wives, and if you've seen the Russell Crowe movie, a really weird angel old man that does magic. But that's not in the Bible, just to be clear. God chose Abraham. He elected Abraham. It was not Abraham's choice. It it has nothing to do with how righteous he was. Abraham was an idolater. And yet God chose him to become the father of the nations. Genesis 18, 19, he says it plainly. For I have chosen him. God chose Israel to be his prized possession. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Let me ask you a question. Is that fair to any of the other nations that God chose Israel and not them? It's not a matter of what's fair. It's just what God did. We don't get to say, remember, we are Slaves. This is how he operates. He elects. It's not a new concept. It's not like we get to the New Testament and God's like, I'm going to do something totally different now. He's always divinely chosen according to his will. Never based on what we do. Never based on like the the kind of popular uh, sort of workaround for election is, well, God just saw who was going to choose him and he chose them first. It's not what this means. Before the ages began, he made the choice, the decision, the election. It means then that in some manner, in the heart of God, based on his divine mercy and grace and nothing that we have done, he has set apart a people, the church, and we are then subject to him as his slaves according to his values. That's why we're here. That's it for the purpose of his praise. You gathered here several moments ago before I came up here and started preaching, and what did we do? We sang. We were fulfilling why God has brought you here into this room this morning. It's what God said he would do all along. Isaiah 43, 21, what did he say he would do? The people whom I form for myself, they will declare my praise. Who formed them? The Lord. This is our identity. We belong to him because of him and not us. So here's what that means. We're not then, the church is not a group formed from our shared values. It's not like we all got together and we're like, oh yeah, we have all this in common. We have nothing in common. We're not a a group defined by individual values. We're not a group defined by individual politics. Hear that, church. We're not a conservative group or a liberal group. We're not defined by social activism or by race or what we think about gender or what we think about sexuality or by any other defining category. Those values are dictated to us from God and not the other way around. Our identity, then, is simply his chosen people 
from eternity past to be his possession to the glory of his praise. Our values, then, are his values. It's that simple. This explains, I, I just, and I love this, the, the church is a, a paradox in so many ways. Right? Where there's unity in the church. That's the big thing. Unity in what we believe. Unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet what? Tremendous diversity. Every tribe, nation, tongue, it says, will praise him. Look around the room right now. Seriously. Look around the room at the people in this room and ask yourself the question, if not for God's electing purpose in my life, would I ever find myself in a room full of these people? There are Eagles fans in this room. I would never find my, in some of them. You knew it was going to happen. <laughs> Listen, we have every difference in the world here. And that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. As long as we have the one thing in common. God's people chosen for his purposes. That unites us and that provides us a system of values. Redeemed by Jesus, filled with his Holy Spirit. Out into the world to stand for his truth. Now, here's why this matters. Because if it is true that God has chosen us as his possession and we belong to him, we're slaves of God, it means that then we have, on every real way of thinking it, no rights in this discussion. It, it means that in the culture war, we don't get a say on what we think should be the normative value, the normative belief, or the normative moral practice. We don't get to decide that. We, we don't get an opinion on that. We don't get to weigh in. It's not a podcast, Right? We, we, our, our group identity sets those values for us. The only things that should matter to me then are the things that matter to God. That's what it means. The only thing, what is right and wrong for me is simply what is right and wrong because God has said that it is right and wrong. I'm not the master of my life. I'm not the CEO. I don't have, I don't have stock in all of this. I serve him. I've been called by him. I've been chosen by him. And my values then better reflect that because if they don't, then it means I'm serving myself and not him. Yeah. So let me get practical. We like to do that around here. If I were to go into a public forum, I'm in a public forum right now, and I say, which is true, I am pro-life. I'm pro-life. I am not advocating a conservative value. There are other people who say that that are advocating perhaps a conservative value, at least here in this country. Other countries, maybe not so much. I am not advocating a political value. There are some who would say I'm pro-life and they are advocating a political value. I don't care about that. I'm advocating a value, hear me, formed from God himself in the scriptures, that life is intrinsically valued because of the imago Dei, the image of God in every single human being that ever has lived and ever will live. That and that alone is enough for me to say pro-life all day long. If I say I believe that your physical sex assigns gender regardless of how you feel, which I believe, by the way, the mind, what you feel, is not objective truth. You have a broken mind because of sin, and you believe weird lies all throughout your life. It's why we need the renewing of the mind through the Holy Spirit. These are not 
conservative values or political statements. They're reflecting a biblical worldview defined by the reality that I'm a part of God's elect and I believe in what he has said. Here's what it also means on the other side of that is that when I choose to advocate for values that are contrary to the heart of God, it puts me in some kind of weird spiritual identity crisis because I'm operating contrary to my identity, to who I am as a part of God's family. And, and this is what I suspect creates a lot of inner turmoil in Christians today, why there is so much inward strife in the minds of people in the church of Christ today because there's this tendency to want to have your cake and eat it too. You're a part of God's family, chosen by God, a slave of God, and yet you're still trying to maintain moral autonomy in your life. And it doesn't work, and it never will work. It only creates more problems for you. But when you begin to submit social issues through the lens of your identity as a Christ follower, you begin to figure out pretty quickly what is what, and it simplifies things for you. And to be honest, it should put you at odds with every other social group to some level. Let me say that very clearly. If you find that your faith in Jesus is walking hand in hand and step in step with another social group, you are out of bounds. You should be at odds with everyone to some level, some more so than others, but you should be out of, uh, out of line with, with all of them. Part of what makes us different, unlike any other social group in the world, is that um, our group is, is the thing that defines our individual values. It is our individual values that, that come from God because he has called us together as a body of Jesus. That makes us different. Can we agree to that? Secondly, we believe in objective truth. This is the other thing. Because of this reality, that God is the one that filters his values down through us, then we hold then to a, an objective truth. Paul, in verse 1, he talks about the knowledge of truth. And first of all, let me just say that truth is extremely countercultural today in our world. We live in a postmodern world that rejects the idea of objectivity. It is countercultural today. It was countercultural then as well. In fact, Cretan culture, where Titus was going, was known for celebrating the fact that they were liars. They celebrated deception. This is a part of their core identity as Cretans. Uh, Paul, in three weeks or two weeks later, we'll get to uh, verse 12, where he is going to quote a very well-known Cretan philosopher named Epimenides. We actually have writings of Epimenides outside of the Bible. So this is a confirmed quotation of Paul uh, in this letter. And what Epimenides says is Cretans are always liars. Cretans are always liars. Now understand, Epimenides was a Cretan. He wasn't... He wasn't talking trash about the Cretans. He was boasting in the fact that they are always liars. The culture celebrated this. They did not love the truth. And Paul understood that, which is why I love this. Paul was so intentional about the way he wrote things. Look at verse 2. He says, therefore, God, who never lies. You see what he's doing? He's making a subtle jab at Cretan culture. Cretans are always liars, but God... He never lies. Cretans are, they get things wrong all the time, but God, he never gets things wrong. One of the things that makes us different is that we believe there is such thing as a truth standard. And, and it's, what it means then practically is that when we get into discussions about specific moral and ethical issues, 
we're, we're not willing then to just agree to disagree on those things. Now hear me when I say this, there are some things, Christians, that you should agree to disagree on because they're peripheral issues that don't really matter. Know, know, your, know your battlegrounds, right? Stop fighting the, the, the meaningless war. Give that to them, that's fine. But when it comes to life, when it comes to who we are as image bearers of God, these are things we don't, we don't give an inch on. We don't agree to, you don't just live your truth and I live my, that, that's, that's nonsense, it's foolishness. There's only truth and there's error. We don't give an inch here. And again, I, I don't think I need to convince you of this, but the world more or less hates this about us. It's offensive. We are, or we at least should be unwilling to give an inch on these very important human issues. We should always be willing to speak the truth towards what is objectively wrong, and that maddens people. Now, let me say, lest I start buttering you up to feel great about yourself, we're really good at this as Christians until... It requires us to speak against something that we agree with or enjoy. Whenever my personal comforts are threatened, objectivity becomes a little blurry, right? Yeah, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but maybe it's not that wrong. I'm not even going to make the application for you. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that, all right? If the shoe fits, put it on. We are different because our identity as the elect of God forms our individual values and, and, and therefore what we believe and value we hold up as objective because they come from God. Now, this should shape our mindset in the way that we engage in social issues around us in at least three different ways. Let me give them to you. Number one, it should cause us to want to live with godliness in mind. Godliness. This is something we need to reclaim as the church. The end of verse one Paul says that essentially the identity as God's elect and the truth of knowledge are all things that accord with godliness. In other words, one way to fight in the culture war is simply by living a godly life, becoming a godly example to those around you who disagree with you. If you are going to stand on objective truth in the culture war, you better be living by it. Godliness is an extremely powerful example. And, and the, actually the opposite is true as well. Ungodliness is a really crappy example. Because we can say all day long, we value object tru objective truth, and we're all about love and grace and mercy. And then when we stop exhibiting them, people are kind of like, well, they don't even matter to you. Because you're just mad all the time. You say awful things. Now, let me also just be clear in saying that uh, you will sometimes step over the line. You are and I am a hypocrite sometimes. And so how we then hold up objective truth in those moments is by repenting and saying, hey, I was wrong there. You realize that when you repent, you are elevating truth because what you're saying is here's the standard and I fell short of it and I'm owning that now. It's recognizing something about the moral law that God has put into the world I want to live my life, my, my goal, and the way I conduct my life is that when those who disagree with me are interacting with me, their thought is, you know, I can't really say too many bad things about them. 
He's irritating. He's annoying. He says things that I hate, that I disagree with, but he's living with consistency. That's my goal. We live with godliness in mind. Second, you live with eternity in mind. Verse 2, Paul says that we live with the hope of eternal life. Now, this hope, it's not wishful thinking, right? It's not like, I hope Taco Bell brings the Mexican pizza back, which, praise God, they did. No, this is a different kind of hope. It's a Greek word, elpis. It's a word that means something like confident expectation. It's something that I can put my, my, my weight into because I'm, I'm confident that it's going to happen. What it means is that your confidence in eternal life plays a role in how you fight in the culture war, right? You, you will live with the end in mind, and that in turn will make you live more boldly. You're going to likely have to stand up for, for truth over really unpopular issues. And when you live with eternity in mind, you'll just do it more boldly. Because here's the deal. You'll probably lose friends along the way. You're going to make people mad. But regardless of the consequences, you will be less concerned with what other people think when eternity is the goal primarily in mind. What it also means is that if there is an eternity, which we believe there is, whereby you either go to heaven with Jesus or the other place with the other guy, hell, call it that, uh, it means that you will also live with a redemptive goal for others in mind. It will shape the way you engage other people. You're not trying to burn them down. You're trying to redeem them with the gospel, which leads me to my third point. You'll live with the gospel in mind. The end of verse 2 and 3, he says that the truth of God and the, hopes, the hope of things that are to come are that which God promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In other words, because of Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, the seminal moment in human history, God's message is now clear and final. And he has now entrusted his slaves to preach it. And you may be thinking, well, that's your job, Pastor Derek. And you're right, it is my job. But not because I'm a pastor. Because I'm a Christian. Which means it's your job as well. It's the Greek word kerygma. It just means a proclamation. To proclaim. To make known. To make known to others the rich life available in Christ. In other words, when you, you live with the goal in mind to share the gospel, the end goal of the culture war is the kingdom of God on the earth. What did Jesus say over and over and over again in the gospels? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the goal. It's not to win the fight. It's not so we can say we're right. It's to see God's kingdom lived out on this earth. And we don't accomplish that by the world's tactics. We don't berate people for being wrong. We don't participate in shaming or cancel culture or any other tactic that the world uses. If you want to win the culture war, share Jesus. That's it. It's simple. It's not complicated. You are never going to convince the world of its error. You are never going to convince the world of your values. People of God, please get this. You are never going to win an argument on Facebook. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You know why? Because you're trying to get them to believe in your values, and your values come from God, and they hate God. That's what the Bible says. 
They are hostile towards God, like we all were before we were born again. Here's what you can give the world. You can give them hope for the forgiveness of sins. You can give them hope of grace and mercy and the relief of the burden of trying to live your life as if you're God because you're not. And because every choice that you make seems to drop you further into the hole than pull you out. You can give them the unfailing love of Jesus Christ. Here's how you fight the culture war. You demonstrate a godly life in your actions and your relationships. You boldly stand for God's truth regardless of the consequences. And you tell them about Jesus. This is why our vision here at City on a Hill is the vision that it is. We are all about the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. That's it. There are a lot of things that are really probably great in the world that don't have to do with the help, hope, and healing of Jesus, and I'm not interested. I don't care. I have limited time. God has given us limited time, and I want to give my time to the things that matter to the heart of God, the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the only thing really worth talking about because it is the only thing that will advance the kingdom of God upon the earth. It's the only thing that knocks down stubborn hearts. It's the only thing that changes individual value into conformity to Christ himself. Jesus defines who we are, what we believe, what we value, what is normative, and our commitment to that makes us different. At least it should. And we're going to see in the coming weeks how this applies to the church, to the home, to the marriage, to the family, and ultimately to the public square where we engage with other people. Welcome to the war. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you. We're grateful. We stand in awe of who you are. When we see who we are in light of, of what you have done, we understand that there's, there's no strength, that there's, there's nothing in us that, that could bring us to where we are, that it was your sovereign hand that leads us, your mercy and your grace that draws us closer to your heart and all we're left with is gratitude. And so how we praise you and we thank you. You are a father who loves us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Help us in the coming weeks live out the godliness that you prescribe in the scriptures. Help us stand on truth unapologetically and yet with a sense of grace and redemptive purposes in mind not simply to argue, but to see the care of souls take place and ultimately let us share unapologetically the message of your son, Jesus. And we trust that when we do that, when we give the gospel the power of God for salvation, as you say in Romans 1, that the Holy Spirit will do his job and that we step out of the way and, and watch him work. How we love you and we thank you for every moment you give us as your servants and slaves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Next week, Father's Day. And men, I'm gonna, I didn't tell first service this, but I'm going to give you a, a, just a, you can look at this. I mean, you have the text in front of you. You'll know what we'll be talking about next week. We're going to be talking about qualifications for elders. And uh, I'm going to challenge you. I hope you'll come. I hope you'll be encouraged and challenged by what, standard God has put before us as men. 
And, uh, and, and I hope that you'll come and, and be a part of the parent dedication because that's a special time for our young families. God bless you. We'll see you next time.